So, uh, next Sunday morning, I will be uh, running a half marathon. And uh, for most of this week, I have felt that running a half marathon is preferable to preaching this sermon. (laughs) Given how many sermons I've preached compared to how many half marathons I've run, gives you some uh, indication of how I feel about this this morning. (laughs) So, church and divisive issues. Nice cheery number for a bank holiday weekend, isn't it? Unfortunately, uh, the truth is that divisive issues come into the church and uh, cause division, obviously. Uh, Some churches have split over the colour of the proposed carpet. Quite frankly, we'd like a carpet to sweep some things under this morning, wouldn't we, Phil? One church split over the church piano stool. That one was resolved by going to two services, where the piano stool was taken outside for one service and brought back in again for the other one. One church split over the spelling of the word hallelujah, or should it be hallelujah? And another split over the way that a particular Hebrew letter was pronounced. Do you ever wonder if we're getting a little bit unbalanced? Perhaps the best story that I've read is this, of the Presbyterian church in the little town of Centerville, population around 5,000. It all started with one original Presbyterian church that had an internal conflict around 1911 over whether to take up the offering before or after the sermon. The splitting off church became the Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church. Just four years later, another church split occurred over whether to have flowers in the sanctuary or not. The church that split off was renamed Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church of Centerville. A total of seven more splits happened between 1915 and 1929 over various issues, and by 1931, the latest edition was named Third Westminster Trinity Covenant Presbyterian Reformed Church of Centerville. More church splits occurred between 1931 and 1975 over the conservative or liberal bifurcation within that denomination. I don't understand that either. Since 1975, a few more church splits over various issues have brought the total number of church splits in that one town for that one denomination to 48, apparently a record. The last one was over whether or not it was a violation of the Sabbath day to check your email on your personal computer. The church split over that issue. Some people left the 2nd Street, 1st, 9th, Westminster Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church and renamed their new church the Presbyterian Totally Reformed Covenantal Westminsterian Sabbatarian Regulative Credo Communionist Amillennial Presuppositional Church of Centerville. A teaching elder, Paul Davis, in the PTRCWSRCCAPCC was quoted as saying, I think we finally got it right now. <laughs> We have a church with 100% doctrinal purity. We're up to six people on a Sunday now. I know that numbers are not important, but we're hoping to grow a little. Can I go home now? (laughs) Well, it's a church reality, isn't it? Conversations, dare I say, arguments over the cross, place of the atonement, the deity of Christ, And even how many angels could dance on the end of a pin. That one's serious, by the way. Maybe this is the way to deal with things. 
Well, it's probably as effective as the other ways <laughs> that we deal with things just to feed fight. Let's be real, shall we? We will disagree, won't we? Especially disagree with you, Andy. <laughs> we will disagree. We will disagree. Sometimes we'll disagree on major issues. And uh, there's only so many of those, really, um, that can be contained within the church, major issues. We'll agree over any number of minor issues. And I guess you could challenge me to define major and minor. I'm not going to do that. We disagree over lots of stuff that basically is personality and style and communication and, and other nebulous stuff like that. But we fall out and we nail it to something and actually it's not any of those things. It, it's something around personality and experience and style. We will disagree. Actually, that's okay. Even constructive if we do it well. I guess that's the big question then, isn't it? So how do we disagree well? How do we disagree well? And those are the challenges for us, that us who belong to Jesus, who are following him, who are being made like him, who are submitting to his word. How do we do this well? We need to have that big vision that is given to us of the kingdom of God. The things that we are involved in are the kingdom of God. It's about taking forward the gospel of Jesus, his kingdom. We need to remember who we are because we are the body of Christ. So we can't just fragment all over the place. That's kind of messy. We are together. We are the bride of Christ. Is there a higher calling or image than that? The bride of Christ, pure, holy, beautiful, attractive, that's who we're called to be. We are not just a collection of human opinions. And boy, do we have some of those in this room. Anyway, I'm right, aren't I? Or do you think you are? Paul, come here and say that. <laughs> so our identity is absolutely key, isn't it? We are not just a meeting we are not a political group, though we may engage in political things. We are not even a democracy. We are people submitted to Jesus as Lord. So when we face challenging things, how do we do that well? Well, it's all about attitude, isn't it? It's all about attitude. So our attitude must be to honor God, first of all. So if the way I speak about somebody or something doesn't honor God, and there's something the matter with that, isn't there? We need to reflect the gospel of Jesus, his truth and grace. We need to respect each other. How can I have a proper argument with somebody that I don't respect? I did say that. We need to respect each other in order to work together well, to listen to each other, to understand each other. And we need, wherever possible, to come to a positive resolution. In these last times, we've, the major thing we've done is this over here, the house, isn't it? And we didn't start off all on the same page. We may not quite exactly have all ended up exactly on the same page either, but we went through a process of agreeing together well, of coping with the disagreeing, of honoring God, of honoring each other, of talking, of listening. 
It was ordered, it was respectful, it was loving. And even at the point where some things were still not completely agreed, we had unity. Unity is not the same as sameness. Unity is stronger than that. Unity is sometimes saying, I'm not completely on this page, but I choose to walk with you. We are not talking about some passive-aggressive agreement. You know, like some of us have at home. Is that all right then? Yes, fine. <laughs> Which clearly means not fine, just in case you're in any doubt. <laughs> it's not that kind of thing where we just stay quiet. Oh, I'll just not speak about it then. I'll just not engage with the conversation. There's some serious conversations brought up in this passage, aren't there? We're not looking for some kind of passive-aggressive agreement, but a, a robust unity. So, to the passage. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 to 8, disputes in the church. First of all, um, it's really important that we understand the context and culture. So they're in Corinth, but Corinth is working like a Roman city. So... Roman law is determined in Roman courts by Roman standards. Paul is saying to these guys, when you have an issue between you, why are you going to the Roman courts? What about God's standards? Can you not work this out without going outside of the community of faith? I want to clarify something really important here. We are talking here about civil cases and not criminal cases. I think that that in our culture is really an important statement to make. We're not talking about some kind of Sharia law which is imposed from the church to everyone else. Nor are we talking about some of the cover-ups that have featured in our media and life over recent years where, well, it's in the church, so let's not talk about it. Let's pretend it's not happening Sweep it under the carpet. Somebody, somebody's dealing with it, when patently someone is not dealing with it. We're not talking about either of those two extremes. We're talking about civil cases. And if you think back to the early church, where they said that everybody had everything in common together. Well, having things in common together is not actually that easy, is it? I mean, those of you who've been students or lived in shared houses will know the frustration of going to the fridge in order to make baked beans on toast for your dinner to find there are no baked beans there because someone's nicked them. Or coming back into a shared kitchen to find that that same person has not done the washing up again. We're talking about civil cases, things that happen between them as they try to work out community and life together, where things got taken and people got hurt and stuff got damaged. No one was quite sure what to do about it. Paul says to them, wherever possible, have confidence in your capacity to deal with these things yourself. He says, one day you're going to be judging angels. Well, we don't have time to go into that this morning, but it sounds quite fun, doesn't it? And he says... One day you're going to be judging angels. Surely you can sort out the issues between yourselves without going to court. Avoid the public arena. 
Avoid public disputes where you can. And that is so impacting in our media charge world, isn't it? How much is the church damaged by the stuff that gets put into the public arena, which some of which at least could be dealt with within the church, some of it not. And we, of course, have social media. And it's a warning to us that when we have disagreements between ourselves and things that unsettle us and disturb us, that the place to deal with them is not on Facebook. I hope that doesn't come as a surprise to you. Or on Twitter or Instagram or whatever your favorite happens to be. Jesus gave us a good pattern. He said, if something upsets you, sort it out. If you can't resolve it face to face, take someone else with you. If you can't sort it out, talk to the church leaders. If they can't sort it out, well, (laughs) maybe then, maybe then you have to do something. Be confident that you can sort these things out. And he says, actually, it's better for you to put up with being defrauded or wronged. It's better to turn the other cheek. It's better to compromise in the situation than it is to take it to the public court. It's better to show the world that there's another way and that we are citizens of a different kingdom. He said their attitudes and behavior made them like those who were not part of the kingdom of God. So here's a question for you to think about in your spare time. Where are we behaving in such a way that we are shaming the gospel in the eyes of the world? Nice, easy one to start with. In some ways, it doesn't feel like there's a link onto the next bit. But I think that as he says, you're behaving, excuse me, frog in the throat, you're behaving like those who are not part of the kingdom. It makes his mind jump to other people who are not part of the kingdom. So it feels like a bit of a jump, but I think it's a Pauline jump. Kind of, sort of makes sense. He says in verse 8, these are people who do what's wrong and who won't inherit the kingdom. He's giving us a list of behavior that is inconsistent with their identity as sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus. He's very straightforward about this. People who do what is wrong will not inherit the kingdom. And he says to them, don't deceive yourselves. Don't deceive yourselves. Every generation has blind spots, doesn't it? One of the uh, areas in Corinth where they would have blind spots, where deception could run riot, was around the area of sexual immorality. It was so prevalent, it was so normal, it was so what they had come from, that they were struggling to see that God's way might be different. We have our own, don't we? Like us, they were in a culture which was compelled by anything goes. Anything goes, anything was okay. So they found any kind of moral restrictions at best surprising and at worst offensive. So a different question might be this. What behavior fits us as members of the body of Christ? What is normal for those who are under Christ's lordship and authority? Well, Paul gives a long list here, doesn't he? And uh, might as well shove it up there so you can all see it. He says, don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the guilty, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. One of the things that's really important for us to understand in this verse is that all of these verbs are very active verbs. It's all active. It's all about pursuing a lifestyle or activities that fit into this that box. So it's all active. So Paul's not saying you, shouldn't, you won't ever have feelings towards things or that you might not be tempted to do things that are wrong. He's saying it's acting out those things that is the issue. I think that's important for us to hear because all of us are tempted in different ways to different kinds of things. All of us have feelings that are not always perfect about the acting out of those things. So as we read that long list, I think I might do this a bit different from last time. Maybe uh, there's a kind of a question that comes to us, and it's this, what does this mean? What does it mean? And maybe somewhere in that is a deeper question, which is, what do, what do we think? Or maybe from your end, it's, what do you think? What do you think? There's some uh, challenging things in that list, aren't there? Let's take greed, shall we? I mean, greed is more than having too many chips on your plate, isn't it? Or for me, having too much curry last night. Greed is is more than that. We are in the top 1% of the global population. And we use a vast percentage of the world's resources, don't we? Is that greed? Please put your hand up if you're a fit in that statistic this morning. We're in that, aren't we? Do we feel challenged? Do I feel challenged about that? Do I feel challenged about my consumer attitude? Which is better than some and worse than others. Do I feel challenged by that? That there's this, this greed, this active greed that I pursue like we are all led to this consumer-driven culture that I am a part of? Do I use that more than my fair share of the world's resources? You see, it's so easy to read that list, isn't it, and go, oh, well, none of those refer to me. And, And let's be truthful, shall we? The homosexual word jumps out like a shining beacon this morning, doesn't it? But actually, God gets under our radar. Jesus said, it says you shan't commit adultery, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, don't even look at a woman lustfully. Oh, somehow the bar just dropped, didn't it? Because Jesus does that, doesn't he? He gets to our heart. He says, don't, don't put yourself on a pedestal and think, oh, I'm fine, actually. I don't fit in that list. He, he gets in our heart. Because we're all sinners, aren't we? We all need God's grace. God's word is, is clear. 
He says, neither the sexually immoral. If you haven't had a chance to, you weren't here last Sunday, you haven't had a chance to listen to Phil's sermon last week, then, then please do that. It, it's on the website. Because sexual immorality is absolutely epidemic in our culture. And God's word is very challenging to us on that, but Phil spoke a lot about that last week. Idolaters. You know, for, in Corinth, it was about having, having an idol, having a, an actual idol, and worshipping another God apart from the Lord God. But how many of us put something, someone, some activity between us and the Lord? We spend more time, more money, more of our devotion is given to that thing than to Jesus. How many of us fit in that category? Because that's idolatry. Adulterers. Jesus is so clear about that. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. He, he doesn't say there's no way back because there's always a way back. There's always forgiveness, always restoration. So don't do it. Damage yourself and you damage everyone else. Don't do that. And they come back to the bit in the middle. Don't steal. Don't be greedy. Don't persistently get drunk. Again, drinking is such a major thing in our culture, isn't it? Getting drunk, of course you get drunk. Everyone does, don't they? It's normal. It's normal for teenagers. It's normal for students. It's normal when you're in your 20s to get drunk all the time. It's normal, isn't it? It's a big issue. Get over yourself. Well, God seems to think it's a bit of an issue because you lose control and Jesus is Lord of your life. Slanderers or swindlers. It talks here about homosexuality, doesn't it? It talks about male prostitutes or, and homosexual offenders. The Greek is very specific. It talks about those who are the active participants and those who are the passive participants. That's all I'm saying on that. And then it uh, says both of those groups of people won't inherit the kingdom of God. So what do we think about that? What do we think about homosexuality? It's the... It's the hot topic, isn't it, of the church at the moment. What do we think? Well, will we go for yes or no? Flip a coin. Maybe a bit more important than that. Yeah. Will we ever be as predictable to give you a straight answer? You should know us too well by now. Okay, let, let's talk a little bit about this, and it will be a little bit. And we're going to give over a couple of evenings sometime in the next couple of months to talk more thoroughly about this issue, okay, because there's only so much I can say this morning, I've way past my time already. So, the first thing that we think is this, that we believe and submit to the authority and integrity of Scripture, okay? This is, this is what we live by, this is what our church is living by. We believe in its authority we believe in its integrity. We believe that we can't take a pair of scissors and cut out the verses that we don't like. That's what it boils down to, isn't it? But I hope that you know Phil and I enough to know that we also believe in an absolutely rigorous interpretation of it. 
So in this particular verse, it probably is talking much more about a kind of um, promiscuous homosexual practice that was common in Corinth. Probably. Okay? We, we are committed to a rigorous interpretation of what the scriptures say and its authority, and we will never run away from that, however difficult it is. So one of our evenings will be simply looking at what does the Bible say about homosexuality, and we will look at it really, really thoroughly and fairly. The second thing is this, that we accept that we live in an entirely broken and damaged world. All of us do. All of us are impacted by sin in the world. None of us is perfect. Unless there's someone here who is. Our world is damaged. It's not how God made for it to be anymore. In every dimension, and I use that advisedly, every dimension is damaged by sin. It's broken, fragile, fallen. This issue is never theoretical. It is never theoretical. In a congregation at the first service this morning, a quarter of the people I knew had a personal, like not them personally, somebody that they knew really closely. This was a real live issue for them. A quarter of the congregation. This is not theoretical. So we believe and submit to the authority and integrity of Scripture. We accept that we live in a broken, damaged world. And somewhere in that, we respond to people, because we're talking about people, not statistics. We respond to people with love and grace and the holy attractiveness of Jesus. We are prepared to live in the muckiness of the conflict and contradiction that is the incarnation. And the question is, are you? Are you? Jesus was, is, we are his church, living in, the, in it, under the authority of this. We'll come back to that again in a minute. Phil used the image last week of a walled garden, talking about sex, sexual relationships within their appropriate place. Another image that we might use is this, of a river flowing between the banks and Phil reminded us that sex is God-given and good. And that sex is given a specific context. And again, we can't just run away from it. Because in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, it says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And that's the pattern that Jesus takes up again uh, in Matthew's Gospel. And I feel like I need to say this as well. Sex is not everything. Sorry for those of you who are disappointed at this point. It's an expression out of relationship. But we also, in all of our relationships, have shared experiences, have different levels of intimacy, have communication at a deep level, humor, sharing, serving, friendship. Jesus was fully human and single. And we need to kind of get that back on the, on the table again, really, because our world says something so different. But when the river overflows its banks, devastation is caused. 
damage, short and long-term damage. And these are the consequences of following the rules of a kingdom where Jesus is not Lord or living by our own rules. And that's our whole culture. I just want to do my own thing, can do whatever I want. Who are you to tell me what I should or shouldn't do? It's really unpopular to tell people what they should or shouldn't do. Rob Bell, in his book, Sex God, which I highly recommend to you, by the way, says that we have a tendency to behave one of two extremes. He says we have a tendency to behave like animals, that are our basic primal instinct to mate and to reproduce like animals. So we can behave like animals, but the other end of the spectrum, he says, or we can be like angels. So animals have a physical body, but no spirit. How much you love your animals. Angels, on the other hand, are a spirit without a body. So when we deny the spiritual dimension to our existence, we end up living like animals. When we deny the physical, sexual dimension to our existence, we end up living like angels. Those are the two extremes. And there's a vast space in between. Freedom was a key concept in Corinth. It is a key concept now. Freedom, do whatever you want. And Paul picks up on that. He picks up on their slogan, I'm allowed to do anything. Well, that's kind of what you hear people say now, isn't it? I'm allowed to do anything. Paul says, yes. Yes, you can do anything. But not everything is good for you. They said food's for the stomach and the stomach's for food. Basically, they're saying, if we want to eat, we'll eat. If we want to have sex, we'll have sex. Feed your urges. But is that it? Are we only the sum of those things? Do we have to be extreme consumers? Persistent drinkers, angry, abusive, sexually immoral, unfaithful? Do we have to be those things? We hear people say all the time, oh, I just couldn't help myself. Can you? About self-control. About boundaries. About choice. Paul says, don't let anything enslave you. And if you have something that is part of your life now that is enslaving you, whatever that might be, Paul says, don't let it. Don't let it enslave you. He says, eat to live. Don't live to eat. Get things in their right perspective and have a right perspective on the body. We're not to be hedonistic, everything is for pleasure, nor are we to be like the Stoics who denied any form of pleasure. He says the body belongs to the Lord. And he uses this striking, actually pretty offensive image, doesn't he? He says, would you take the body of the Lord and join it to a prostitute? He expects us to be offended by that because it is offensive. And in doing so, he's reminding us that we belong to the Lord. And so that when we commit immorality, whatever that might look like, it is offending the Lord who lives with us. He challenges them to have behavior that's consistent with their new identity. In verse 11, he says, that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We are all sinners. We are all. 
And we are all saved by the grace and mercy of Christ. None of us deserve it. So if you're sitting there thinking, oh, God, I feel wretched this morning. Sorry, by the way, if you do. Everyone else is like you. Everyone is. Some things show up a bit more brightly than other things. But God sees our hearts and he knows that we are all sinners. We are saved by grace. If we're dirty, he washes us clean. He sets us on a new road. You are not worse than anyone else. Everyone needs the grace of Jesus. We are not defined by our behavior or our sexuality, but our relationship with Jesus. For those of us who have teenagers, we've talked about this a bit recently, it's, it's no longer, I think I'm going to be blunt at this, it's no longer, are you sleeping with your boyfriend, which used to be like the main deal. I mean, that still is a deal, by the way, but it, that used to be the main deal. It's, it's all around what type of sexuality you have. And if only it was as simple as being homosexual, it's like bisexual, pansexual, transgender, and many other things. It's like, a, it's like an alphabet of sexuality. Because our young people are being defined by their sexuality and are self-defining by their sexuality and are confused about it. To be fair, I'm quite confused about it at the moment as well, but... It's so messy now. And I, and I know this is not a perfect image, but we were talking about it in the week and saying, it feels like looking in a broken, shattered mirror and that everything is slightly deformed and distorted. To be fair, even our heterosexuality is also distorted these days. Everything is. And it's just sad, isn't it? And it's just sad. And people say that faithfulness and celibacy is basically impossible. People say, well, you mean you've been married for 40 years? Wow! Have you managed that? You're not bored? Be faithful all the time? Do you not think it would be a good idea to try someone else? I mean, it's just like, feels like something that's just completely unreachable. And we say to people who are single and, and potentially who are gay, be celibate. It's like, feels just, just this big, impossible. Like as if anyone could ever live their whole life without having sex. I mean, that, that's kind of what it boils down to, isn't it? God challenges us through his words that faithfulness and celibacy are things that are possible. That are, are possible. And somewhere in there is something really important. That the wider church has a key role to play. And... You know, I don't know if we've been that great at this, to be fair. But we need to, to walk with each other. I don't expect there's any marriage in this room that hasn't had some pretty tough times. We need to be there for each other, listen to each other, support each other, encourage each other, 
Being single is not an easy place to be. And Phil's going to talk about this next week, so I'll not steal all his thunder. But it's easier with good friends. It's easier with a community. It's easier with people who know you really deeply. If we say that homosexual practice is not something that the Bible holds true, then what does that mean for us as a church in terms of support and care and love and standing with people? Because you can't just say, well, you can't do it and then do nothing. And that's the other thing that we'll spend an evening talking about. So I'm going to shut up now. We've got a pile of books. If you want to read some of them, feel free. There's one that's not there that's also really good. But we, the church, I can tell you what it is. <laughs> so just in closing, Paul says that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, a temple is a place where heaven and earth meet, isn't it? And Christ is in us. I don't really understand that, but I know that it's true. And it elevates who we are, doesn't it? We belong to the King. And how we behave stems from who we are and whose we are. And we are not conditioned by our culture. Well, obviously we are. <laughs> but we need to be more conditioned by the Word of God. And if we're distinctive and different, it's because we are called to be. We're called to be holy, set apart. And it's hard, isn't it? <laughs> it's the reality of incarnational life is hard. Jesus, word made flesh, God made human. We are the church in the world. We are called to be truth in the messiness. Truth in the messiness. It's challenging, isn't it, holding to this? whilst living in a messy world, whilst loving people, whilst wanting the best for them. Is that, is that challenging? Do you feel challenged by that? I find it not impossible. It's really tough. But that's what we're called to be, isn't it? Because that's what Jesus was like, is like. We're called to be his people in this place. Truth and love Compassion and mercy, grace. That's all. It's easy after that. I just want to say, um, this is a rubbish topic to talk about from the front. <laughs> and so if things have come out wrong, or I've said things that I didn't quite mean, or you feel sensitized by anything and you want to talk about it, please talk about it, because I'll just say, oh, sorry, I didn't really mean that. <laughs> sorry, it came out all wrong because um, this is real and it's horrible standing at the front for 25 minutes doing it <laughs> so um, please don't get cross with me because I would hate that talk to me and, uh, and you're probably right and, and I might not be <laughs> so let's do that